Good morning. I, I send, bring greetings from Hanson Baptist Church, and I'm always glad to be here uh, ever so often. Um, Dave calls me to come. It's been a while, but uh, he's preached in my church as well. We go way back to 1981, where we met in seminary, and uh, we've been uh, friends, and our families have been very close ever since then. I'm just curious, uh, how many of you uh, this morning are, are Baptist? Any hands? Any Baptist in the group? Okay, I see a few. How many of you are not Baptist, but wish you were? <laughs> I, I saw those hands too, and I'm not going to tell your pastor that. I want you to join me as we open God's Word to the book of Second Peter. And this chapter, um, there's no way we could cover the whole chapter in one sermon. So I've chosen to take just a part of this I want to read the whole chapter, but I've just chosen to take a part of it to help demonstrate what Peter was teaching the followers of Christ here about false teachers, even in his day. I'd like to start reading where our brother left off, and in verse number uh, 10, the last part of the verse, daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic magistries. Whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like unreasoning animals born as creatures of instinct, to be captured and killed, reviling where there has been no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. They counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you. Having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin. Enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he received a rebuke for his own transgression. For a mute donkey, speaking with the voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet. These are springs without water, mist driven by a storm, for whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity... They entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by, for by what a man is overcome, by he is enslaved, by this he is enslaved. For if after they've escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It has happened according to them, according to the true proverb. A dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. Lord, open our hearts, open our eyes. Let us see this morning what you would have us to see from your holy word. Help us, Lord, to think about these verses, and as we hear them and as we explain them, I pray that you will make these very, very clear to us. What a warning this entire chapter is for Christianity, especially today. Help us understand this. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. What makes a good preacher? One man has written these words describing what a good preacher is. To be a minister today in the typical church of a prosperous suburb one must be skilled as a politician in the rhetoric of ambiguity, circumlocution, and double talk. He must talk plain language, though in such a way that no listener can take offense. 
He may attack race prejudice, but it must be done obliquely so that no one in the congregation imagines that it refers to him. He may attack business ethics, but it must be done in such a manner that no businessman who listens will think he is implicated. Today's preacher can indeed use all the doctrinal phrases, but always so cunningly that conservative listeners will take them one way, liberal listeners another. In brief, he must learn to preach without saying anything. Peter was so afraid that these followers would move away from Christ and move into a different cultural idea or teaching. He was afraid because even in his day, there was a growing pool of false preachers flooding the church, literally sneaking in, unaware. People were unaware that they were in their congregations and they were giving in to the changing culture. Now, I'm not up here to sell you toothpaste. If I was, I would be presenting a brand new toothpaste. Maybe Jana would have her line included here. But if I were selling that, I would change the, the look of the dispenser. I would change the flavor. I would write in so many different ways, new and improved. But as ministers, we're not selling anything, are we? We're teaching the gospel, the unadjusted gospel. The gospel that doesn't change because our culture changes. We see it all around us today. The world is moving one step closer to ungodliness and wickedness. And the church is moving one step closer to the culture. We see it in many, many churches that refuse to talk about judgment and hell. They refuse to talk about anything negative that might cause any of us to feel uncomfortable. That's what Peter was concerned about. Now, in chapter 1 of this second letter of Peter, he describes what a real Christian looks like. And in verse 3 to 8, just listen to these words, and I hope this describes you. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And for he who lacks these qualities... And the qualities he's talking about, of course, is in verse 5, um, applying all diligence in your faith, moral excellence, uh, moral excellence and knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, in your perseverance, godliness. It's a stacking of attributes and things in the Christian's life that simply says we should be growing. But in this day, as he's pointing out these false teachers... I'm going to share with you three things to help you recognize a false teacher. Things that Peter has given us here. And the very first one begins in verse 10, the second part of the verse. He describes these false teachers as daring, self-willed. They do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. Whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord... But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct, to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, and in the destruction of those creatures, be destroyed. He's describing here, first of all, their arrogance. The words coming out of their mouth oftentimes are are so arrogant. And uh, in this particular thing, he's talking about these people that are so daring, these false teachers that are so daring and charismatic, that they would speak out against angels. Now we know in the Old Testament, one angel killed 185,000 Assyrians. We know the power and majesty, and the word here is simply glories. They do not tremble when they revile glories. They don't even believe in the supernatural. And so, therefore, they're so arrogant, they're daring, and they're self-willed. This word self-willed is used in Titus 1.7. When Paul is talking to Titus there about going into each place and establishing an eldership, he says an elder must not be a man who is self-willed. A man who has a, makes a statement like, it's my way or the highway. But they're not afraid to... 
blaspheme against angels. And this word revile is our word blasphemy. And it's used several times in these verses. They're not afraid to blaspheme angels. Now, Peter and Jude are complementary of each other. Most scholars believe that Peter drew a lot of his material from the book of Jude. And many of the verses sound very, very similar. But in verse 8 of Jude, he says, Yet in the same way, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh, reject authority, revile angelic majesties. But Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil, argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. One man wrote these words, The false teachers may have scoffed at the idea of angelic help and of diabolic temptation. Their tendency seemed to have been to make light of the unseen, to foster a sense of the unreality both of sin and of goodness, and to reduce the motives of conduct to a vulgar hedonism, which is the doctrine that pleasure is the sole chief good in life and that moral duty is fulfilled in the gratification of pleasure-seeking instincts and dispositions. How stupid is this? For these men in their arrogance, not to regard the glories, the angels, the supernatural, God himself. Jude 9, as we read, also describes their arrogance with their words. When they speak, they speak with such confidence and such charisma. Yet the things that they speak are not true. And they are false teachers. He describes them here to creatures of instinct. Now, when I think about this, when I think about, and he says they have no judgment and no thought of themselves, I think about creatures of instinct, and we love our animals, don't we? We love our pets. I have a dog that defies this because he has both reason and instinct, and I can prove it. Every morning, I get up get my cup of coffee, I go out to a screened-in porch. The dog is already waiting at the door because what he wants to do is get out that door and grab his tennis ball out of the bucket. And then he goes over to where I'm sitting and he looks at me and he growls. Well, try as I may, I, there's no way I can get the ball out of his mouth. No way. He's too strong. So what I do then is I take my right hand, which is my throwing Ball hand, I, I reach over and I get my cup of coffee. You know what he does? He drops the ball. He knows that this hand is preoccupied and that's going to give him time to get ready to chase the ball that I'm getting ready to throw. That's reason and judgment in my book. But these false teachers don't even have that, Peter is saying. They deserve to be put down, he says, just like a mad dog or a rabid animal. And they will be put down. Look at what he says. They're, they're going to suffer wrong as the wages of doing wrong. How? How are they going to suffer this? And we're going to see in these next few verses exactly what he means by it. I don't think that they realized that their sin would find them out. Believers do face, unbelievers do face judgment, natural judgment. We know about the judgment that's going to be in the end when God is going to judge the wicked and the righteous. But they also have a judgment here on this earth. They face the judgment and consequences of their sin, but in a natural process. In 1981, which was the year I met your pastor, in June of that year, five homosexual men in Los Angeles were, went to the hospital and they had a brand new disease called the Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome, AIDS as we know it. Five started with five men. Since that day, AIDS is discovered in all 50 states, and over a million and a half people have contacted this dreadful, terrible disease. Is this not a natural process? 
Is this not something that God has allowed in his judgment? Now, everybody doesn't agree with that. But God is just saying here that they are going to suffer the wages of doing wrong. And be sure our sin will find them out. He calls them stains and blemishes, reviling in their deceptions as they carouse with you. This word, revel, it's a word that's translated softness. It's translated effeminacy. It's translated with luxurious living. They count it a pleasure to live a luxurious life in the daytime, which means they do not work for a living, but live off the money they get from those they lead astray into false doctrine. They live luxuriously in a time when men are supposed to be sober and at their daily occupations. This is the illustration of the false teacher. We can see it all today. I did a little study on this. I googled mega mansions. And you, I don't know that you can believe exactly what I found. But an article from Trinity Foundation in the Roy's report states that of ministers... The very At the very top of the list, and I'm going to name some names here because they did, and I'm just quoting them. But Joel Osteen lives in a house, 15,700 square feet, worth about $14 million. 2017, he purchased $7.3 million home in Newport Coast, California, which is, by the way, owned by an LLC registered in Delaware. Kenneth Copeland, maybe you've heard this man. He has a tax-exempt house, 18,279 square feet, worth about $11 million. One year later, after he bought it, the, the value was dropped to $7 million, saving him $150,000 in tax a year. We could name so many names. T.D. Jakes, three homes and a trust. Jesse Duplantis lives in a home that's 35,000 square feet. That's huge. For a man of God to present himself to the world this way and for the Christian community to receive him, Benny Hinn, I haven't heard much from Benny lately, but his house is 9.2 million. My point in bringing this to you is this is exactly what Peter's saying. These men, they are, they're living this life and they're reveling, they're living softly in the daytime. Now, some of you know that uh, your pastor served with uh, John MacArthur some years ago, not very many. There was a report out and a research into John MacArthur's lifestyle, and the IRS flagged him for flying business class or first class. So they contacted the church because a church being tax exempt, the IRS will not allow a pastor to fly that way and have a deduction from first class or business class. When they started investigating him, you know what they found? And I love this because John MacArthur, he's the most humble, he's the most humble servant that I've ever met. But he has pulmonary embolisms in his legs. He has blood clots ready in his legs. And the doctors forbid him to fly more, any more than three hours on a plane unless he could stretch his legs out and get up and down as he needed to. So his board basically said, no, John, when you're going more than three hours, we're going to put you in first class business or business class, and we're going to get you to your location safely. You see the difference? And when you really start looking closely at a man's life, you will see these differences. The men he's talking about here, these arrogant, charismatic people, their spots, their stains, their blemishes, which the word blemish means a disgrace. Now, there's something interesting here. I'm just going to throw it out to you as an option. But when in verse 13, he calls them spots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you. The word carouse can also be translated feast. Many scholars believe that these people were so slick, they found their way into the church. And then when the church had their agape feast, their love feast, which they had before communion... Remember in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul really challenged the church at Corinth. And he said, when you come together, one of you is hungry and another gets drunk. And he says, this is not the way it's supposed to be. 
Well, this feasting, I believe this might be a reference to the fact how they snuck into the church and turned something so holy as a love feast into something terrible. Jude verse 12 mentions this very example. Listen to what he says. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feast, in your agape feast. When they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead and uprooted. Just look. Just look at a man's life. Look at the way he lives. And you'll see a whole lot. If a man lives, and I'm not, uh, you know, against a, a, mer- a person, God has made you wealthy. Everything's relative. Enjoy what God has given you. But for a pastor, for a minister to, to live this kind of life, it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit what the Bible teaches. I believe if you find a man who's living in a $17 million house and that house is being paid for by the church, I think you found a false teacher. So, Peter talks about their arrogance coming out of the words, coming out of their mouth. It's interesting that next he moves to the eyes. You can identify a false teacher by the eyes. Having eyes full of adultery, literally the Greek is full of an adulteress that never ceased from sin. Enticing, unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children. His eyes. If Al Gore had known that his Gore bill would have opened the floodgates to give the internet to everybody, which is basically what happened. Some of you may have heard that he invented the internet. No, he just opened the door for it to flood our world. It's the best thing and it's the worst thing that we could have. Because Satan knows that he can get us trapped, especially us men. Us men are more prone to that than you ladies are. God's given us that desire with our eyes, but yet Satan has so corrupted it. I've heard that 95% of men, 95% of you men in this room, struggle at some time with your eyes and with lust. The other 5% struggle with lying. It's true. It's, it's how we're wired. And yet these false teachers, they're not even trying to hide this. They, they have eyes that are full of that adulterous woman. And they never cease from sin. This man is always looking for a woman to commit adultery with, to corrupt her, to satisfy his sensual appetite. Jesus, of course, said in Matthew five twenty eight. Anyone who looks on a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. The word looks there is a present participle, which means is looking. It describes a person that's always looking. They're always looking and they're always trying to feed that insidious affection that the Puritans used to call our sinful cravings. And so you can see them in this very light. Kistemeyer, a scholar, makes this statement. He says... What a degrading view of women. She's not a person, but a tool designed to fulfill their sexual craving. David Helm writes, The eye is the metaphor of choice to speak of the inner desires or pursuits of a person. Follow a man's eyes, and they will lead you to the hidden desires of the heart. Men, may I speak candidly with you, all of you, ladies, you as well, but especially you men. If this affection has trapped you, if the internet pornography has cornered you and you think you can't break this, you can. And with God's help, you can get victory in this very thing that Satan wants to keep feeding you with. But there are steps that you must take in order to get free of this. And the first step you must take is you've got to shut down the shipping lanes. Whatever's bringing it to you, whatever's reminding you of it, you've got to shut You may think this is ridiculous, but a friend of mine recently said, you know, I had to start driving a different way to go to work every day. And I said, why is that? And he said, they put up a billboard. 
And this billboard has a very seductive woman on the billboard. And for some reason, it just captures my attention as I drive by. And he said, day after day after day, I would get close to the billboard and try to turn my eyes away. And most of the time I would, but I knew it was there and in my mind. And he said, you know what? I took a different route to work. (laughs) And it was the problem solved. Now, there is a person really trying and really working to try and honor God with his eyes. But not these false teachers. And it says that they're enticing. They're enticing. Catching is the word. Is, is, uh, it's a, dolos is a word that means to um, catch something. Like to catch a fish. Uh, to bait a trap. That's what that word means. I don't know if any of you remember the, um, the old rabbit box. Some of you might remember this. To catch a rabbit out in the woods. It was a rectangular box. About this long and about this wide. That's all it was. And you, you raise it up and you put a kind of a crooked, weak stick in the front of it. And you put something that would attract that rabbit in the end of it. The rabbit would come. And as he hopped in there, he would hit the bait stick and the box would come down on him. We would go out into the woods and we would have us a rabbit. Well, that bait stick is what this word is all about. And Satan, he, he does this. And he, through these false teachers, we see it. And then he says, he says, eyes full of adultery that cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. Now, this is where I hope you appreciate your pastor teaching you the Bible verse by verse. That he's teaching you and he's giving you meat and he's giving you something whereby you can grow. But an unstable soul is a Christian who has not grown. It's a Christian who's neglected Ephesians 6.13, the whole armor of God. It's a Christian who's not firmly established in the truth. Chapter 1 and verse 12, listen how he describes these people. I want you always to be ready to remind you of those things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth. Those he's writing to had a good foundation, but there are others that are unstable because they haven't learned and grown. Those who distort the scriptures also fall into this category. And the very last part, verse 16 of chapter 3, as also in all his letters speaking to them of these things in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught, and I'll supply the word unstable, and unstable distort as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. So here we have the eyes. Man, make that covenant that Job made. He said, I've made a covenant with my eyes. And don't fall prey to what these false teachers had fallen prey. So we've talked about the mouth, the words, the speaking, the arrogant words. We've talked about the eye. It's interesting that the next thing he mentions is the heart. Having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. Having a heart trained in greed. Now this is interesting. The word trained here is our word gymnasium. This has actually been a lifelong process for them. Learning how to live with covetousness. This is a perfect participle which describes action in the past with continuing results. They learned this as children. And as children, they grew up probably in a selfish home with a selfish mom, a selfish dad. Guess what? Mom and dad that are selfish raise selfish children. And so I believe this is a picture here of something where we need to go back and make sure we're teaching our children how to share. Because that's the opposite of being greedy. It's teaching them how to share. I called my daughter before I studied this passage. And I'm teaching through First and Second Peter in our church. And I called her and said, and just the week before, her children had been in our house for a few days. And of course, every papa is proud of his grandkids. And, but I was. I was so proud at how grateful they were, how thankful they were, how respectful they were. So I called her the, the next week. And I said, Andrew, tell me how 
you're teaching your children to share. And here's what she said. She said, first of all, I teach them how to share by sharing with them. When she gets something good, ice cream cone, a piece of candy, whatever, offer them a bite. Share. Teach that from the very beginning. And when they get something good like that, ask them if you can have a bite. She says, now that's where it gets a little tricky because sometimes they really like that ice cream cone and they don't want to share it. But she said, test, we test our kids on this. And if they are thankful, then they will get blessed. If they are not thankful, then they may even get their portion taken away. You know, only once or twice as a child that you learn this and, and it sticks with you. To illustrate this, we, long years ago, many years ago, we had four of our, uh, four of our kids at the table and, and a cousin. And we were sitting there, and my wife Connie comes to them, and it's, it's just in the afternoon. She said, how would you guys like some ice cream? Oh, yeah, yeah, get us some ice cream. So she goes to the freezer, and what she thought was going to be enough ice cream for five kids wasn't. And so she had to make very small portions out of that ice cream. But she gave all five of them an equal amount. Well, the cousin spoke up and said, is this all we get? And the other four went, shh, don't say that, don't say that, she'll take it away. But I'm being serious here, that for your children to be taught how to share is so vitally important so that they don't turn out with greedy hearts. That's what these false teachers had. There's a few more. There's one that's very, very important to me, and that is teaching our children to give. And teaching them to give an offering. Now, we don't take up an offering in our church. I notice you guys didn't either. Maybe you didn't because you've got a guest speaker or maybe you just don't. But when your pastor and I went to Russia to teach, we took from our church um, an offering for each and every church that we were going to be in. And so when I got to the first church, I, you know, I assumed they might be taking an offering. We used to take an offering in our church with these Baptist golden plates. I mean, I hated those. Matter of fact, one day, I just went out and I, I hid those plates. And I went out and I bought little wicker baskets. And I just hate that idea of that golden plate passing. And you put your money and it makes a noise in the plate. And so anyway, so up to that time, we'd been passing the baskets. But I went to Russia and I saw that they had offering boxes in the back of the church. So I came back to our church and I said, guys, could we try this? Oh, we can't do this because we'll miss the offering. We'll, you know, we will suffer from not having passing the plate because people forget and they won't remember to put their offering in. And I said, exactly. That's the whole point. If the offering's coming from the heart, you're not going to forget to do that. You're going to want to do that. And you know what? Not only did our offerings increase... But we started seeing children dropping coins into those boxes. And you could hear the coins drop. And I tell you, I think that's music to heaven. And now the Sunday school teachers for the young children are marching them over during Sunday school with their offering. And they come into the sanctuary and they put their offering in, in these boxes. I think that's teaching those children not only to be grateful, but to be generous and to give. And um, another couple of ideas she gave me was uh, take turns who gets the first piece of cake. I know everybody gets a trophy, right? And I hate that. There are times when you go first. You go first. This time let's daddy go first. Let's mama go first. And what you're doing, you're teaching them this thing. Because this is a terrible terrible thing to have greed in your heart to have a covetous heart to have a heart atmosphere that's never satisfied now in order to illustrate this what he gives us is a story from the old testament in numbers chapter 22 to 25 time not permitting really for us to do the whole thing but it's a story of balaam and so Peter introduces Balaam here, which Balaam, by the way, is mentioned three times in the New Testament. Here, is, here he's talking about the way of Balaam, 
Revelation 2.14, writing to the church at Pergamum, describes the teaching or doctrine of Balaam. And in Jude, verse 11, Jude talks about the error of Balaam. What was it? It was his greedy heart. Balaam in Numbers 22 to 25. You read the story. The king of Moab comes to Balaam called a prophet. I, he was a prophet, but he was a terrible prophet. And he comes to him and said, you know, I've heard about Israel. I've heard about what they did to the Amorites. And everywhere they go, God blesses them and they destroy their enemies. Would, if I pay you, will you curse Israel? Will you pronounce a curse on Israel? The first time he asked, and by the way, they brought a delegation with lots and lots of gifts. Guarantee you from what we know about Balaam from the New Testament, Balaam looked at those gifts. And rather than sending the people back to Moab and sending them back saying there's no way, Balaam says, ah, why don't you stay over tonight? Why don't you stay over and let me think about it? Balaam knew. But he thought perhaps there was a chance that he could, and he was a double-faced man. That's the whole point of using him here. And finally, God said to Balaam, no, you cannot curse my people. So the word goes back. The king sends back a bigger delegation with more treasure and said, the king really wants you to curse Israel. Won't you reconsider it? And rather than Balaam saying, no, I've told you no, he says, hmm. Why don't you come on in? We'll think about it. So the next day, God gave him the word, no, you can't curse my people. So what becomes a, um, almost, a, when you read it, it's a little bit confusing that God finally says, okay, Balaam, I want you to go. But I only want you to say what I'm going to tell you to say. That's it. So this is where the story takes up, where Balaam gets on his donkey And he rides his donkey and he comes to a point and the donkey stops. And Balaam whipped the donkey. And the donkey was not going forward and the donkey went to the side and went close to a wall. And Balaam's leg got pinned on the wall and Balaam beat that donkey a second time. And then the third time, the donkey headed toward a narrow place and stopped. And Balaam whipped him a third time. And then you know what happens, right? The donkey speaks in a man's voice and says, why are you hitting me? I've been your faithful donkey for all these years. Have I ever done anything like this before? Or the the third time, the donkey actually lays down. Have I ever done anything like this before? And the scripture doesn't even say that Balaam was... Thinking about a speaking donkey? But he talks back to the donkey like that was normal. And so finally, when it was revealed to him that there was an angel standing right in front. And this is a proof text, by the way, that angels have personality. This angel spoke up and said, If you had come through this passage, I would have killed you and I would have let your donkey live. It tells you that that angel just tells you a little insight in them. And so Balaam then, you know, would not curse the people. He'd only bless the people. And, but he always had his eyes on the pot. He always had a greedy heart. He always wanted stuff. And in the end, in chapter 31, he died in battle from the Israelites. And then later on, it says of him, I think in verse 6 or 8, In that same chapter 31, it says that Balaam had led his people into idolatry and he talked the Israelites into falling into uh, fornication and all other kinds of sexual sin. So here's the illustration that he, he uses. Don't be like a Balaam. So we've talked about three things this morning as we've talked about false teachers in kind of in a broad brush. We've talked about how that they, their eyes are always pursuing wickedness and evil. We talked about how the things they say, it's always out of arrogance. Their lives are arrogance. Even the way they answer questions are arrogant. And then their hearts, their hearts are just filled with greed. So think about those three things as it relates to you this morning. 
Think about yourself. How do your words define you? Are you a gracious person? Are you a person that's so easily irritated that words flow out of your mouth to display your arrogance? Are you a person whose eyes are focused on the woman that you married and focused on the Lord that you worship? And are you still pursuing her? These are big things to think about as Christians. And then the third thing, our hearts. Not to let our hearts get saturated with the greed of this world. I'll close with this. David Helm again writes, Every Christian ought to long for the spirit and word. To water the world with gospel glory. And that is what makes Peter's tirade against false preachers so searching. These preachers promising water, the refreshment of the Holy Spirit, with all his good gifts and assurance. What they delivered instead was a deposit from an empty well. They lowered their buckets to the wellspring of their own self-delusion and pulled it back up in the presence of the people. When they poured it out before God's thirsty flock, nothing except dry, gritty sand fell uselessly to the ground. No true refreshment and no soul satisfaction or invigorating relationship with God. The warning for preachers, me included, is immense. Any of us who abandon the apostolic way, promote sensuality, and seek our own gain are springs that cannot produce water. We are vapors that drift past the spiritually indigent like a haze. The end for any of us who conduct our ministry in such a lifeless way is haunting. For them, the gloom of the utter darkness has been reserved. The same horrific end need not be your destination. Peter would have you know which preachers to follow and which preachers to avoid. So if you walk away from church week after week without the watery teaching of God's grace and judgment and of mercy and of apostolic moral imperatives, then begin looking elsewhere. Find a preacher who will tell you the gospel according to Peter. Press on. Leave the platitudes behind. Funny stories and gripping illustrations are of no help if they're not accompanied by life-giving water and rain. That's what this Bible ought to do for us. And as your pastor leads you through, I think he's in the Gospel of John right now. I think I saw that. As he's walking you through these passages, all of it has so much meaning. And I so hope that you're taking it to heart. You have a very fine Bible teacher here. And I hope you appreciate that. The world is full of false teachers. Let me pray. Lord, before we sing, I just pray that your Holy Spirit has been speaking to each heart and life. Lord, that this message will be received. It is your word. That we will be warned and cautioned by these false teachers. It was so important for Peter to write an entire chapter on this subject. So help us, Lord, be warned. And may the Holy Spirit open our hearts today and let us see wonderful things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.